You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast, the show that gets inside the heads of your favourite comedians, unpacks their creativity and bothers them about their mental health. Today I'm talking to Ola. He is an absolutely fantastic comic based in London, um, someone I've been aware of. I've gigged with him a few times over the last couple of years and he I've always admired not just his act but his hustle. Uh, he's someone that is he's produced a DVD of his act, he sells them at gigs, he properly is focused on working his career in the room. He's focused not just on delivering excellent stand-up, but also in standing there, being there afterwards, turning people that enjoyed him into fans, turning them into people who are going to come and see him again. So I'm always really inspired and impressed when I see people doing that deftly and with confidence. And I love his act as well. I, I have to say probably the tipping point for inviting him on the show was seeing some of the... What's the word? <laughs> some of his, some of the content he provides on Facebook. I was tr- struggling with the word. Problematic isn't the word. We talk about this in the in the podcast. Um, some of it is challenging. Some of it is difficult. Not all of it do I agree with. But uh, he makes a really good case for some very provocative opinions. Provocative is the word I should have said. I don't want to make this. He's not a monster, but uh, <laughs> but you should definitely check out uh, his online presence. So this is an interview with Ola, and uh, I will just remind you that I'm on tour at the moment, and at comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour, you can get tickets to see my own stand-up comedy show happening all over the UK. I will talk to you in the middle bit. Um, and after this episode, if you stay till the end, the post-amble today is a before and after set of recordings uh, that I made before and after the pilot of Everyone's a Comedian, which was a very exciting time for me. And so if you can cope with it, you'll hear me uh, get very nervous and ramble, and then you'll hear the uh, <laughs> the after recording uh, later on. So enjoy those when they come. This is Ola the Comedian. So where are you at at the moment? You're, have you finished for Christmas? Um, no, I've got a, um, a run at the comedy store. Ah. Yeah, just for this weekend. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday, then I'm done for the year. How long have you been in with the store for? Oh, wow. Um, I'm going to say four years now. Uh-huh. Four years. It was, yeah, actually it's pretty easy for me to track 
because I got in just after I got engaged. It was like all within the same month. It was amazing. Um, so yeah, my my twenty that got me in was September twenty thirteen. Ah, and did you have a chat with Don? Did he I did. And, did he come did. and shake your hand? He pulled me to the corner like the mafia boss that he is. And it was like, I just want to have a chat with you. And he didn't say in that voice, obviously, but um, he pulled me over into the, the, the sort of comedy store, Diner Booth. And um, and he was like, he, first of all, the funny thing is, he pulled me in for a chat, but spent the first five minutes not even talking to me. He had Simon there as well. Okay. So he just spent the whole time sort of floating ideas past Simon that were obviously gassing me up. He was like, yeah, what do you think about taking Ola out to Dubai? I mean, <laughs> could definitely do Manchester. I think Dubai would be great. We'd love to get him to India as well. That'd be... And I just sat there the whole time just looking at him like, this. Guy, you know what you're doing to me right now. Yeah, right. You know this is what most comics have waited so long for. And you're kind of just passing it off like, hey, whatever. Let's, let's, let's just throw this guy out in Dubai and give him, you know, seven gigs. Why not? So, yeah, it was, um, it was a weird experience, but it was awesome. And where where does that fit into where you feel you are in comedy at the moment? Um, I feel like it fits into being the fulfilment of a lot of previous um, goals and aims, but ones that have also shifted as I've got them. So there was a time where playing the store was like definitely almost out of reach, but definitely one of those goals that seemed a bit crazy, but I wanted to get there. Um, but as I started playing more and more clubs and started to um, gain, I guess, a bit more confidence in myself and my own craft, I started saying, okay, I still do want to play the store, but and I have bigger aims as well. I want to be able to have my own audience and I want to be able to um, do TV or be international or whatever it was. Um, and so it's great because it's it still feels like an accomplishment, but it's not as big an accomplishment as when I first started and thought it was like the be all and end all. You know? So that's, yeah, that's kind of how it feels right now. And how far along that road do you feel you are at the moment in terms of... Because you're, you're someone who, like, w- almost your, your opening bit when I've seen you most recently has been about how you want to become the best comic ever. Mm. So, like, that's... And that's, I think that that's kind of um, representative of your manner on stage. I don't mean to take that completely at face value. Okay. But I know that you, when we did a show together the other night, yeah. you got a stool and sat on a stool, and I, I wrote down, stool. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's one of those guys who the can... stool guy. He yes. can get... You can get away with, with sitting stool. on a stool on stage. Yeah. What's that about? Is that a stasis thing? Is that right, you're in my house? What's the stool? Uh, the stool... Um... The stall actually happened fairly recently as a as a mainstay, right? So I, I think it was actually a gig I was doing in Slovenia or something like that. And um and and the thing about the thing about the way I, I, I do stand up is I, I understand I often have to communicate a lot about who I am and where I'm coming from and what angle I am and my viewpoint and so on very quickly so that I can establish myself all the other stuff I say later on. So I remember being out there, it was in Slovenia and it was in a, it's a gig in this, um, it's up on the hill uh, in the courtyard of a castle and it's just a weird surrounding. Um, There've been all kinds of other comedians coming up and I was like, how do I convey who I am to the audience very quickly? And, um, And there was a stool there and the moment I sat down on it and everybody sort of got into my rhythm and got into my vibe, I was like, yeah, this, this feels right. And so I started doing it more often and I found that, yeah, there is an element to which it sort of 
it's it's kind of high status. It's kind of it's the next level of comfortable. I mean, I've always sort of been somebody who's showing you how comfortable he is on stage. Like I'll I'll wander around, I'll look up at the scenery because I'm so sure my next my next bit is gonna drop. Like I'm not chasing your laugh anymore. And um and that was really when I found my my rhythm and my stroke was was when I started this journey of believing that my my next bit is gonna drop. So behave how you want to. Leaning up against the back of the wall the the back wall on the stage and um looking at somebody or saying an off comment about something that's not even to do with anything and then just going right back to my material. Because I'm so sure I have them. And um and I think it's sort of it sort of matches my outlook on life because it means that I'm no longer trying to convince anybody I'm funny. Uh, they're sort of going, well, this guy definitely believes he's funny. Let's, I must be wrong. I must be like, I need to find out what's going on with him. Like, I need to find out why this guy is so hilarious. And, and, and it's sort of like this Jedi mind trick where you sort of trick them into, <laughs> into believing you're funny. And then they, they go with it. And then they realise, you know, I'm, I'm not just doing it out of pure arrogance. I've actually, you know, worked at this. I've done this before, trust me. And then they go, all right, fair enough, cool, all right, yeah, this yeah. is awesome. Did you want to do that before you were able to? Like, to know that your next bit's going to drop, you need you need to know that your next bit's going to drop. Yeah. Like, because I, I think we've probably all seen acts, newer acts, kind of fake that kind of confidence. Yeah. Where you, and that's, that, that's worth, that kind of turns you against them. You're like, yeah. you are confident about nothing, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's a big gamble. But the thing is, like, I think maybe for my first gig, I faked it, 100%. I was backstage, my first ever gig. It wasn't even a proper gig. It was a university event. And I told my friend I can do stand-up. And he was like, yeah, come ahead. Come along. Just try it out. Why not? Um, he didn't even believe it, 100%. But I was like, yeah, whatever. And right before I went on stage, this girl asked me, are you funny? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm funny. I remember saying, hell yeah, I'm funny. Like, this was your like first, was your first ever gig? First ever gig. Okay. I'd never done stand-up before. Um, but from, from that moment on, I, I, I had a great gig. So, you know, that kind of, I guess, boosted me. But in many ways, my 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 true feelings about it aren't what they are now. I didn't think I was that funny. Like, my next joke is going to bang. It's going gonna, it's gonna to land. It's going to be amazing. Um, I Apart from that moment of being sort of, just sort of living in this faux confidence of telling this woman I'm so hilarious, I kind of came into comedy very reverentially. I was very, like... I, I I saw comedians as almost like superheroes and I just wanted to be amongst their ranks. And so um, it came across in the way that I performed. It was almost like a guy who wanted to be a stand-up comedian. And it was a couple of times that certain friends of mine would say, Ola, slow down. Like, you've got good material. You're going to be okay. Like, let them laugh. Don't don't jump in on the laugh and stuff. Um, and especially because I came up doing a lot of the, the black shows where... It, like stakes are high, man. They will let you know if they're not enjoying you, and and I kind of felt on edge to like show them that like, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good. And then after having a few really really bad ones, a, a lot of really really bad ones to be fair, um, where I felt like I was growing, but the audience wasn't liking it so much. But then certain people would like it. I was like, oh, okay, so. I do have something. It's not for everyone, but I have it. And so those people sort of encouraged me to believe that, yeah, you've got what it takes. And some people won't like you and that's okay. But 
there are definitely enough of us out here who do and and you should believe in that and when you say certain people do you mean other acts or audience members or other acts friends audience members um you know acquaintances family i've had all kinds of people come into my life at different moments and say maybe one sentence to me that means way more than a hundred oh great gig or great show mm-hmm. or whatever um every once in a while someone says something and i'm like oh oh snap this this actually this actually is something like i you know that the it kind of helps with the the imposter syndrome i've kind of come into comedy with at times you know like i've because I wanted to be amongst, I've often felt like I wasn't really supposed to be here. And um, especially because I was, when I started stand-up, I was doing accounting and finance at the London School of Economics. Like that's as far from being a stand-up as you could possibly be. It's it's not creative. It's, um, it's definitely supposed to take you towards being an investment banker in the city. Um, and so the fact that I was getting away with being a stand-up was kind of like, yeah, maybe one of these days they're gonna find out you're not actually one of these funny people. But somehow, somehow, I'm like almost ten years in, and no one's found out yet. And so after a while, you have to start asking yourself, maybe, maybe you're not an imposter. And um, and carrying that to the stage, I guess, has been you know one of my biggest strengths. You know, in the way that people see me, perceive me, the, the way they laugh, the way that they, um, the way they position me in their minds. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you talk. You're the last person I expected to talk about imposter syndrome. Oh, wow. And I think that's because of your... Wow. Well, I tell you what, my experience of you is uh, through two two different things, apart from, like, you know, the old green room here and there. And my experience of you is this incredibly confident persona on stage, yeah. the slowness, the stool guy. Yeah. Uh, my other experience of you, which we will talk about at length, I'm sure, is your internet presence. Okay. And... You are one of my most fun people to be friends with on Facebook <laughs> because you say some unbelievable stuff that I look at and I go, holy shit, Ola. And then yeah. I kind of, I go, okay, I'm going to try and get my head around this. I like this person. I respect his opinion. Poor, okay. And then I don't necessarily agree with it, all of the comments underneath your posts on Facebook from a <laughs> wide variety of people. But... Um, uh, so there's that. So there's that half of you as well. Now both yeah. of those people are very, very explicitly confident yeah. personas. Mm. They're very confident parts of you. Yes. So I'm very surprised to hear you uh, talk about imposter syndrome. Do you think you're able to recognise it in other people? Do you see other acts and think this person doesn't believe in themselves enough? Yeah. Yeah. What are I the mean, giveaways? The giveaways. Um... Well, it depends. Different people at different stages of of their imposter syndrome, and so, um, you know, there. I mean, there's a there's a classic one which we've all seen before, which is telling the audience that that joke was funnier than they gave it up, gave it credit for. Um, I think that's just a, a telltale sign of somebody who has put in work to convince themselves, and uh, they they're kind of seeing that that facade crumble a little bit and they need to repair it. Um, and, you know, in many ways, it, it still happens to me sometimes. You know, there's times where that facade crumbles a little bit and I'm like, hold on a second, I know this is good. Um, and and, and, I've, and I've done it in so many different places. Why aren't you guys laughing at this? This should be going over a lot better. Um, there are a lot of other 
smaller tells, I guess. Um, you know, when somebody is um, is is clearly telling jokes that are not within their voice, you can get a sense of who they are, but the voice doesn't match up with the material yet. You know, like when somebody tries to, um, you know, you, you ever heard someone tell a joke and they they say something like. Bitch, please, or something like that. You're like you. You've never said. You don't say that. You. That's not your. That's not from your mouth. Why are sure. you trying this? Like, yeah, it's one of those situations where you know they've almost they're, they're trying to build the persona that allows them to live the life they want to live. Because if they were too much of themselves, they wouldn't get there, or they wouldn't believe in themselves enough to get there. Um, so yeah, I'd say that it's a sliding scale. You know. Um, for the, there are those of us who sort of, I guess, got a bit further in uh, overcoming this imposter syndrome, and uh, some of us still at the beginning of it. But I think it affects way more people than you think. There's a lot more people out there who um, almost feel like they're getting away with something that they shouldn't, when they have every right to. Um, and, and funnily enough, um, it's a conversation I have with my wife often. Um, because I notice it in her, and she's not even a comedian or anything, but I notice it in her and in a lot of women with the way that they approach um, an opportunity and believing in some sort of sense of not being ready for it or not having earned it enough or so on and so forth. And, and then I see some of the male counterparts who do end up in those situations, and there's no way that they have earned it. But the belief is there. It's just... It's so much more um, ingrained that, yeah, of course, I should be in this position. I should get this opportunity. Yeah. And what I've learned from it is that they do. Yeah. They do get the opportunity. And um, and I think in many ways, you know, it's it's one of the reasons why those who, you know, are maybe born with a certain amount of privileges remain in those privileges because they believe they deserve them. Um you know, it's something I witnessed. I, I went to private school, and, and I think that's one of the greatest lessons it, it taught me is that the world is for my taking. I can do whatever I want, and um, and it's one of the reasons I'd send my my daughter to a private school is because I want her to believe the same and obviously temper it with care for human life and being a decent person. But I want her to believe that yeah, if you want to become prime minister you can and if you want to um become the world's richest woman you can and if you want to um you know be a stay-at-home mother and wife you can and you can make that happen and you can live the life you want to live is there is that kind of um particularly when you look at it through the spectrum of of trying to plan for your daughter's future to try and uh create an environment in yeah. order to to, to 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 try and um catalyze mm. and it, uh, her kind of thinking it's almost like on the one hand you've got uh aspiration and self-belief and on the other hand you've got the risk of ending up entitled yes. like i think that's you know yeah. with private school i went to a private school mm-hmm. i think there were a lot of people there who were very entitled yeah. i i am i'm not ashamed of having gone to a private school mm. i got a scholarship it's, yeah. i didn't come from a wealthy same but, well i did come no my dad was fine you know he okay. was pretty well off but yeah. i still got a scholarship to this thing otherwise i wouldn't have gone yeah but um uh i 
I recognise a lot of entitlement there. Yeah. So is there, like to me, it's really interesting to hear someone say, I'm going to send my child to a private school because that's yeah. almost like a taboo thing to say, isn't it? 100%, you need to go, yeah. I believe in the state school system, which is yeah, you but... know, crashing and burning all around me. <laughs> but you have to understand that um, I have a different relationship with it. Um, you know, like yourself, I was on a scholarship and a bursary. So um, the scholarship was due to academic excellence and the bursary was due to um, not being able to afford it. And the those, those together, and my mum making me hyper aware of them, have been the antidote to feeling entitled. I've had to feel like, she's let me know that if, if when I get a B, she's like, keep slipping on these grades. When your scholarship drops and you don't get to go back to school and you miss all your friends, so you're not going to have yourself to blame. And then I'd, I'd like really internalise that and be like, well... I don't have the same story as everyone else. I have to work hard. Even if I have friends and we all go to the same school, our situations are different. And um, also understanding the fact that, you know, the bursary was really because she did a lot of work in terms of applying to, you know, so my school's part of a foundation. And it was built on the principle of a bit of like a Robin Hood thing. Um, so, my, this, like, okay, so I went to Trinity and um, Trinity's part of the Whitgift Foundation, and before Trinity used to be called Whitgift Middle School, and Whitgift was called Whitgift Upper School, and the idea was that all the upper-class kids would go to Whitgift Upper, pay these extortionate fees, and that would subsidise the same quality of education for the middle-class and working-class kids who went to Whitgift Middle School. Okay. Um, And then as we've sort of changed our ideas on how we view class and society, it became known as Trinity School, and... But they kept a lot of the same ethos there. So there were, you know, Trinity gives out a huge amount of bonuses, um, bonuses, bursaries and scholarships to make sure that gifted children can still get high quality education, which is something I highly respect about them. And one of the reasons why I say I really appreciate them is because they did give me that that belief system that, you know, you have what it takes to go where you want to go. And you know, we'd sit there in, in assembly and they'd be like, oh, we're going to have the editor of the Financial Times come and speak to everybody. He's an old boy. And you'd think, oh, he went to this school. Yeah. I go to this school. I can become one of them. Or um, so-and-so is in the army. He's going to fly a Chinook back and we can all take a ride in the Chinook um, at, uh, if you're part of the cadets or something. And And I was like, well, when I speak to my other friends, they don't have this sense of, like, they can do anything because they've almost been limited just by circumstance and so I'm like well here's an opportunity to try and overcome and override circumstance I wanted to grasp that as much as possible and and so when when there is a sort of guilt around private schools and you know it's not a nice thing to say and so on I understand it because I understand that for a lot of people I'm not against privileges 100% I'm against unearned privileges and um you know I believe that just simply being born into a rich family doesn't entitle you to the best of everything in life. But what I'm showing my daughter is that, look, even if your dad's a millionaire, understand he didn't start from that. And he had to work and he had to go do the open spots before he did the live at the Apollo. And he had to do the, um, you know, the menial retail job before he could follow his passion. Like things need to be earned. And, um, and what that means for different people is different, but there is still a sense of needing to earn it. Um, and so when she gets to go to a private school, she's still going to need, it's still going to be a sense to which she needs to show a, a version of earning it. That's how I, that's how I look at it anyway. 
And who is going to be, between you and your wife, which one of you will be pushing the agenda that your mum pushed the hardest? Um, probably me. Um, my wife went to a grammar school, which I guess still is some of the same ethos, because even though it's state funded, you still have to sort of earn your way in. You have to pass an exam and you have to do, you have to do something to get there. And, uh, but I think with me having gone to a private school, I, an understanding and appreciating the, the the sacrifices my mum made to make sure I could go there, I am probably going to be the biggest proponent of that as a parent for my daughter. Um, just because I want to, I want to learn from the good things my mum did, and then I want to improve on that. So I don't want to make her feel guilty, which is how I often felt. You know, I don't think any twelve-year-old can really comprehend what spending ten thousand pounds a year on fees is really like. I can't really put the numbers on her and stuff, but I want her to know that you are privileged and this isn't going to be, um, you know, the beginning of a, a, a terrible lifestyle of believing that things should just come to you. This is going to be a, a, the beginning of a great mentality that says you can go and create the life you want. Does your mum support your comedy career? She, well, it depends which day you ask her. Um, she has said everything from the most supportive things to the point where she's like actively seeking out contacts for me um, down to describing my career as almost like tantamount to being a drug dealer. Like it's, it's been everything in between. Um, and, and in, that's in, been... the, in that analogy, does she mean a successful drug dealer? Or an unsuccessful <laughs> drug dealer? Um, I think she just sort of means um, a job with, with, uh, with no sense of moral standing. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think there are times where she, you know, if you see somebody who's out late at night um, and uh, is away from his wife and so on, you know, in her version or in her traditional view of things, that's somebody who's not a serious family man. That's somebody who is um, probably hanging out with all sorts of women and, 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 f- pimping, pandering and philandering his way around um, London, if not the world. She over- should listen to some conversations in green rooms about A-Rose. <laughs> <laughs> if only they knew. If only she knew how many, you know, depressing takeaways I've had in a in a Premier Inn after a gig. And she really, deep down somewhere, she thinks I'm, you know just bed hopping or whatever it is, whatever she's put in her head as as a substitute for her disdain for my uh, career and lack of financial stability. Um, I think, yeah. Luckily, my wife understands and that's all I need. That's the only person I really need to understand at this point is is my wife. And the thing about my mum and, and most Nigerian parents is that They'll find a way to justify it when it makes money. So when, when, <laughs> when the millions come, she's not really going to be so concerned with uh, with how I got it. And she's, how optimistic are you that the millions are going to come? I'm I'm pretty damn sure about it. I'm pretty damn sure about it. I, I think um, uh, I I have enough signs and signals in my life that tell me I'm supposed to be rich one day. And everything that happens now is to prepare me for that. 
everything that I'm doing, everything that I'm experiencing, being super broke at times and so on. I, I, I don't think, and it's partly because I'm a Christian and I believe God has a plan for my life, but I don't think that I would be given all the opportunity I've been given um, and and it not to amount to a certain amount of success in terms of building wealth. Um, and also, I, I, I find it really weird and it's, and it's quite frustrating, but I often find that I... Um, that I think like a billionaire and it's frustrating because my bank account doesn't agree with me, but I, I just find that these thoughts aren't supposed to just stay in my head. I'm supposed to do something with them. One what day. do you mean? You think like a billionaire? I think I, I've, okay. So like one example is I've, one thing I've noticed about super wealthy people is that after you bought all the stuff, Eventually, if you look at all of them, what they what they're trying to do with their money, they're trying to buy the kind of world they want to live in. So they, it's either they will, you know, buy political candidates or um, set up these foundations or whatever it is. Because after a while, you realize that all the stuff is transient. And the thing is, I think like that even when my account is overdrawn. I think like, how do I buy the world I want to see? I look at my area and I just think which businesses would I like to to invest in here? What kind of infrastructure would I like to build? in Thornton Heath? Who would I like to invest in? Who would I like to pay for them to go to school? And who would I like to, um, well, what, what would I like to institute in Nigeria? Who, what kind of world would I like to see um, as, as a man who has Nigerian heritage, but has never lived there? What could I, what, where do I see myself um, making that a better place? You know, all these kind of things don't match up with my, I sort of skipped a lot of the stuff part that some people go through. And I've kind of got to the, you know, megalomaniac stage <laughs> without really paying my dues. And, and so I just kind of feel like there's a reason why I think like that. There's a reason why my mind works that way. And okay. so that's why even when I do stand up, it's sort of like with the view towards creating a world I want to see rather than, I feel like I'm at my lowest self when I'm trying to earn 50 quid or trying to earn 100 pounds um, in a club. That's my lowest self. But my, my, uh, my, my, true, my truth comes when I'm doing stand-up as part of a bigger plan towards creating the world I want to see. Okay, okay. Yeah. So there's a sort of, um, kind of a, an element to your work which transcends the feeling of sitting on the night bus on the way home after a, 100%. a gig in central London. Yes, yes. In fact, but even though you might spend a lot of time sitting on a night bus on your way home from a gig in Central, yeah, Asia. yeah, I, I, you know, you know when they um, when they speak of Americans as um, sort of temporarily embarrassed millionaires, yes, yeah, I feel like like that, like, but I'm not it depend the level of embarrassment just wavers from time to time. But there's times where I really love, I'm sort of like romanticized the struggle I'm in because I'm like. This is all part of the story. Like I've got great, <laughs> That's I, good. I'm, this is like, I'm like turning the, the chapter like, oh, this autobiography is going to pop off. You guys don't even know. Um, like I've got a lot of great stories for, about being broke uh, along this way. And whenever I tell people, they're like, no, bro, this is the story. Write that down. Like, you can't forget this. Uh, and, I, and I really believe it. I really believe it. I, I definitely have a lot of things in my um, in my short experience on earth that I think just kind of show me that I'm destined for more, but I need to go through this time. 
I need to I need to be here. I need to go through this. And is is that based predominantly on faith or is it based on evidence? Because you're clearly a you're clearly a successful comic. Mm. You're not the most successful comic. Indeed. So you're you seem to have this unshakable resolution that it's all going to work out. Like I, I spoke to you know Loisu Gola. Yes, you work with him. I think I've seen you uh, uh, hanging out with Loisu. Um, he has a similarly unshakable faith mm. that the world wants him to have a great life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's like I think you're the only two guys I've ever spoken to. <laughs> I'm not. I don't remember off the top of my mind, off the top of my head, whether he has a faith, a Christian faith, or yeah. whatever faith. Um, but do you think? Do you think it's based predominantly on faith or on evidence? I think it's. I think faith is everything to me. So that's the first start. That's the foundation. And then I think evidence becomes very subjective because some people look at certain things in my life and say, "Well, that's an accomplishment," and I look at it as, "Well, that's evidence that I'm supposed to do more." So it's just it's your your viewpoint tempers what you see as evidence. So when I look at a story of the um, you know. Uh, all the times I've been to America, for example, for some people, it's like, oh, there's great stories. But I see them as, like, great stories that are going to end in the ultimate fulfilment of everything I'm supposed to do in life. You know, and and I guess I need to see it that way because that's what keeps me going. For them, I guess, you know, if you're not invested in it, you might just hear the stories and be like, oh... Oh, yeah, he was broke and that was it, you know, or oh, I guess he wasn't doing so well then or whatever. But for me, I need to believe that they, they, they're going somewhere for me to push through them and to not let them define me, but also, but let them motivate me. You know, it's, it's, it's partly just functional to believe that way so that I can keep going. So this is Ola really enjoying talking to him. Uh, really thoughtful, interesting, insightful guy. And uh, as I said, do look out for his uh, his material on Facebook as well. It's not even really material, but it's a, a sense of him wanting to say often provocative things, not just for the sake of their provocative nature, but he's genuinely engaging with social politics in a way that I find very exhilarating and often very funny. So you can find out more about Ola by... Googling him, I don't know, I'm, I'm never, I've never got the links at my fingertips, but you could certainly find his stuff online. You can buy his album, Ola the Comedian and His Future Wife, uh, which I think you'll enjoy, and uh, do look him up online and try and find out where he's going to be next. So, uh, to other news, I'm currently recording this in Texas at South by Southwest, where I've recorded one episode with James Davis, which will be coming at you soon, uh, one with Maeve Higgins, likewise, and I'm about to record an episode with Ron White, who you may or may not be familiar with. I think if you're in the U- in the UK, you may not have heard of Ron. He's dabbled, as I understand it. But uh, he's an absolutely enormous presence in American touring comedy. He was part of the Blue Collar Tour, um, which you, will, you might have heard of if, if you're into your comedy. And... Um, he has got a lot of things to say for himself. I met him last night and he is kind of the closest uh, uh, equivalent comic I could think of. I imagine before having spent time with him, uh, I would imagine he's got that kind of Mike Wilmot, craggy veteran, <laughs> the aging warhorse Mike Wilmot. Um, so I'm really looking forward to talking to him and then Beth Stelling tomorrow. So 
I'm going to get back to my research for that in just a moment uh, and leave you to enjoy the rest of this episode. More live shows coming up on the Like I Mean It stand-up comedy tour, my own one, uh, and that is uh, coming to somewhere near you. If you're in Dublin, I'm so sorry that we had to cancel that due to the beast from the east. We took the decision jointly with the venue to cancel that show when it became clear that very few people, myself included, were going to be able to make it there safely. And then a few hours later, both my flights there and back were cancelled. So it was a huge pain for me. I've never had to cancel a tour show before. So many apologies if you were one of the people who'd bought tickets for that. I hope you can come and see me another time in Dublin or somewhere else. So um, do come to comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour to find out more about where I'm going to be. The tour continues over the next few months. Um, if you're in Bath, get your skates on. Really, it's great fun watching the numbers tick up as people, more and more people buy tickets. Bath, guys, where are you? <laughs> so uh, uh, if you are in or near Bath and not coming to the Bristol or Corsham shows, maybe I'm hammering the southwest too much, maybe that's it. But um, get on that and I will hopefully see you there soon. Thank you to those of you who have uh, recently been donating to the show and supporting the show. And uh, I, my God, I looked at some... I, oh, no, I'll tell you, I'll tell you about this later. I looked at some analytics... Uh, uh, which iTunes now provides for when people listen intently to the show and when they skip a bit. I know what you're doing, but if you are listening to this bit, you have my utmost respect. Um, thank you for recent donations from people such as Marie, Alex, uh, Stephen, and who else was that this week as well? Right, well, it was just Marie, Alex and Stephen. Well, thank you very much to you. Uh, thanks for donating to the show. I reply to everyone in due course, but at the moment there's a lot on. Um, oh, and speaking of things that are, of which I've got a lot on, do stick around for the end of this episode in the postamble. I'm going to talk you through how I was feeling just before and just after the pilot for Everyone's a Comedian. So that'll be coming up shortly. You too can support this show as well as other endeavours of mine. And when you donate to the show, you're not just paying to enjoy it you're supporting my freedom to take other risks other projects other creative things so uh as i will say at some length in the in the little recorded bit it's about it's like eight minutes and then ten minutes or something like that you know not all of you will listen to it but if you do uh, i i hope you enjoy it i hope it's worth your while um you will absolutely hear me intimate that your patronage is what allows me to do other projects and take risks on things that you might then go on to enjoy so my very many thanks to everyone that contributed to everyone's a comedian we can but wait with the fingers crossed and see what happens next but um but those of you who've been supporting this show financially with a one-off donation or a subscription payment via paypal moon clerk or patreon uh then thank you very much to you i really appreciate it and uh, and you enable me to do fun things like come to South by Southwest and start other strange projects, some of which are currently active but secret. They're in the active but secret phase. That's quite fun. Um, so thanks for all of that. Let's get back to Ola, and I will speak to you in a bit. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So coming back to this stool in a castle. Yeah. First time you used it. You said before that you need to kind of, uh, you need to let them know who you are and where you're coming from. Yes. And the, and the stool helps that, the status, the, the, the pace of the delivery. Yeah. What are, the, what are the other things? What, like, what's the checklist of things? When you say, I want them to know who I am and where I'm coming from, who are you and where, where are you coming from as it pertains to an audience? Okay, well, um, I think the, one of the few things, um, I mean, even just first of all, uh, describing myself as a high-status act, I had never even considered that before. I think it was John Ryan or something who pulled me up once. Um, we were doing gigs in Bristol and I'd, I'd been to Primark or something like that and I bought a, a sweater and he was like, can't wear that on stage, dude. You're, you're such a high-status act. This isn't communicating who you are. Uh, and I was like, oh, I'd never even considered it like that before. I remember earlier on in my career, I tried wearing a suit on stage often and Noel at the Comedy Cafe told me I looked like a used car salesman and I just kind of took it as, oh. But what he said to me was that it doesn't look like me. What I should I should wear what I usually wear because it look, actually looks good. I can get away with jeans and a T-shirt and trainers because I look cool in it. And... And what what I start, started to do is take a lot of those things and start to realise that, okay, so the way I come on stage is dressed um, makes people form an opinion of me. What do I want them to think? What I want them to think is this guy's comfortable in who he is. Um, this guy's proud of who he is. And um, and this guy... And, and there is a certain amount to which I want people to think that I'm cool. Because um, I hate saying that word. It's weird, but it's the only way I can really describe what I'm trying to say. I want them to think this guy is cool because then that that then follows on to he knows he's funny. We need to find out why he's so funny. Um, uh, I want them to know that I am not going to be apologetic for being black or apologetic for my viewpoint. Um, it was a, a friend of mine. It's a comic. Her name is Gina Brillion. She's a New York comic. And she said Chris Rock actually said this to her which is that the crowd can smell bullshit. Uh, so whatever you say, make sure you believe it. And and I wanted to sort of encapsulate that in everything that I communicate to the audience, that, you know, I really am who... I really am in touch with who I am. And even though I might provide a, a comedic version or a, an emphasised version on stage, there's still always a real thread of who I am in there. And... Um, and I'm in control of how much I'm giving you. I am very much in control of the situation. And I'm very much in control of um, 
myself as a as a human being and 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 and, and so you know what i wear is like you know if i put a an nwa t-shirt on for me that's saying i like nwa more you know i don't i even though there are a lot of people who might take umbrage with some of their music i like it and i'm gonna come out here and show you that um if I if I wear a, a cap that says Sunday service on it, like I'm wearing right now, um, I'm promoting my show. I have a show called Sunday Service. And whereas previously I've sort of been um, made to feel ashamed for being, for promoting myself, I'm not going to anymore. I'm going to get uh, way... I'm I'm going to start to put that aside and and ignore all of that and and be honest with myself and say do you know what this is who you are go out there and be that person um and so sometimes I feel like when you when I stand in front of an audience there's a way you can stand in front of an audience which almost makes it seem like you are explaining yourself to them you are um at their mercy and that's not what I'm communicating I'm communicating that we're here and I can sit down and you can sit down, but we're going to have a chat and I'm going to fake this out of conversation. And, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it in a way that makes you trust me so that even when I'm, you know, making you feel uncomfortable, you go, oh, I trust this guy because he's shown me. I'm really interested that you use that phrase, even when I make you uncomfortable, yeah. because I think you seem to enjoy. No, that's not even the right word. You're not afraid of making the audience uncomfortable. And I think this relates... A li- I mean, I mean that in a good way. I don't yeah. mean that the audience sits there freaking out. I thought yeah. it when you said the NWA t-shirt. One of the signifiers of an NWA t-shirt is sort of saying, I'm fine with you being racially uncomfortable. Yes, yes. And I wanted to talk about that in reference to some of the, the your Facebook stuff when you do kind of, you know... Shout outs. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I'm really interested in it. I think someone, I don't know if you used the hashtag white tears or someone else commented using yeah, the hashtag white else, tears. Someone else did, yeah. So I followed that up. I was like, white tears? That's a bit provocative. What's that? And I fed, <laughs> found some genuinely jaw dropping, oh shit, that's a thing. Oh, it fuck. Is. It's a thing. So it, the, the thing is, white tears, white tears is such a multifaceted, um, you know, online social humor phenomenon because it describes so many situations that is one of them but it's it's definitely just it's the at the root cause it's the value we place on how white people feel yes that's all it really is and we've sort of we've we've uh commoditized it as white people tears uh, and so sometimes you see like memes of somebody sipping from a mug and it's labeled <laughs> white people's tears um because it's this sort of super valuable thing where if a white person feels uncomfortable about something, that needs to change. We need to do something about this. We need to have a referendum. We need to actually like, like change everything because white people are not happy about this. And contrasting that with the fact that black people are unhappy about a lot of things. And the, the prevailing narrative is, well, that's life. You need to get, you need to get over that. You need to move on. You need to, whatever it is, whatever version of it. Like, I I just had that this weekend where um, I called into LBC and um, it was Majid Nawaz's show. And I called in to explain um, more from like a, a social commentator slash comedian's point of view, why blackface 
doesn't get the response that it seems to want um, and about how how the kind of role that trust plays in terms of how you tell a joke to an audience and even how you tell jokes in society. And the amount of um, backlash I've had on Twitter, because like, L- like Majid really liked my response and then LBC like tweeted about me and they made videos, made clips and stuff and like that. Um, comedians devastatingly, you know, doing the clickbait stuff. So a bunch of white people have clicked on it now and they don't like my point because they don't see why they should have to change their behaviour. They don't see why they should have to um, change the way that they speak to black people, the way that they, um, you know, conduct themselves in imitating Diane Abbott. Um, if, they, if they're trying to do that, they're going to need to blacken their skin, obviously. But, and, and I'm appealing, I'm always appealing on the sense of, like, this humanity, like, look, if you understand that it upsets a group of people, why would you not just leave it? Like, why are you purposely trying to poke the hornet's nest? But literally, the whole basis of their argument is um, is either funneled down to, yeah, surely it's, I'm, I'm just about treating everybody the same, or um, why should I have to change this? Well, oh, we have to change everything because black people aren't, aren't happy about it? How long do we have to do this for? Why do I have to pay for the sins of the past? Why do I have to... It's literally like, why am I made to feel slightly uncomfortable? <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's absolutely. That's the boiled down version of most complaints that you get from white people when you bring up an issue that genuinely affects black people. Black people are still trying to recover from, like, I'd say probably a good four, five hundred years of terrible PR. We're still trying to, like, rebuild an image of actually just being human. The fact that I have to call into a radio station and explain why I'm still trying to rebuild my sense of humanity is already demeaning enough. I think if we're honest, black people in Western society are incredibly gracious. The fact that we live side by side, we see the nonsense, we see the... We see what's happened and we see what's still happening and we still try and find a way to reach across the aisle. We still try and find a way to politely smile when our names are made fun of or when um, we're told to uh, just sort of get over things or to be professional or whatever version of don't make me uncomfortable that a white person is saying. I think if we really, really looked at it, just based solely upon the way white people react to being made to feel slightly uncomfortable, if black people behaved in a, in, on a similar scale, these countries would burn down. You understand? Like if, if, the, if, the, if we match the level of outrage at being made to feel slightly uncomfortable, then by the time we actually address what's actually happening, we would consistently, until every single person is dead, burn this country down. And the fact that we don't, I think, is a credit to black people. But unfortunately, it often in this world that doesn't seem to value humanity, it comes across as apologetic. And so when somebody like me comes along and I'm not being apologetic, I come across as angry or um, unnecessarily confrontational. They don't see that the rest of the black people are actually being gracious. They see it as they're behaving themselves. Yeah. And I'm misbehaving. Yeah. And what I get a chance to do on stage because of how powerful humour is, is to redress that balance. And that comes back to the fact that I need to create the world I want to see. 
and that's what stand-up is for. And I get this opportunity to go in front of a group of people and um, and create a world for 20 minutes. And they come into my world and they walk through it with me and they, they navigate it with some of the things that they know and then they learn some other new things. And then they, um, they see me as a human because I talk about very human things. But then they see the differences in their own life stories and mine because they understand that humanity has been splintered and broken in so many different ways that there are other valid experiences out there, you know, and, and they don't need to go out for a night just to constantly hear their own one being revalidated and that they can possibly for 20 minutes just walk through with a different experience. I think all of that is way more powerful and that's what's really sort of kept me excited about being a comedian. I think one of the, the things that, like you say, that white people are keen to avoid being made slightly uncomfortable or, or are, are kind of upset, like yes. radically upset at being made slightly uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I have been trying to engage with as a result of following some of your more, <laughs> more <laughs> inflammatory Facebook posts yeah. is, um, is the nature of, as a white person, being happy to be, being, being fine with being racially uncomfortable. Yes. And I think that's, and I don't just want to sort of talk, we could talk endlessly about this subject, but specifically yeah. as, it re- as it relates to your act. Yeah. I think one of the things I really enjoy watching you do on stage is forcing people to be fine with being racially uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you know it, but in my set, um, I, it's funny because sometimes people still come up to me and say, you know, why is it black comics always talk about race and blah, blah, blah. Fuck, okay. But I don't know if you realise it, but in my set, there's literally two bits that are about race. One of them's a tester, and the other one is what I really want to say. Um, so, and I've learnt this technique for a while, over a period of time, of knowing where the audience is by using the tester joke and then knowing how to perform the joke I want to say um, that way. And so what I will do is I'll I'll tell the joke about me um, driving through America and being stopped by the police. Because we know the context. We know the Black Lives Matter and so on, um, the movement and why that's happened and what that means for black people who get stopped by police in America. And do you know what? A reason why I picked that one is because that's one that, most white people in this country are actually okay with. Most white people are happy to acknowledge racism that's an exotic form of racism. It's like, oh, that's that down south racism or that's that South African apartheid racism. And that's the reason why in this country, um, you know, black acts are often made to feel weird for talking about race, but we'd happily listen to a whole hour of Reg D. Hunter or Trevor Noah talk about race because we can pretend that it's that exotic racism that happens over there. But when, a, when someone close to home talks about it, it's kind of accusatory in many ways because you kind of feel complicit in it. Like, this is a British guy talking about it. It's not that bad over here. It's not that bad. It's not like yeah. America or whatever to, it is. And to accept that it is that bad over here, I need to let, as a white person, I need to let myself be uncomfortable with that and think, oh, actually, maybe I am complicit in and benefiting from this situation. Exactly. Which is why I like telling the first joke about me, it happened in America and it's a small situation. I just make a reference to it. And I, and I, just, I deliberately finish on, a, on an uncomfortable line. Um, you know, maybe it's my turn to mysteriously commit suicide and see how the audience takes that. Because what I really want to get to is helping them to understand 
how much they've been shielded from the ideas of cause and effect. And by the time I get around to the colonialism joke that is like the mainstay of why I'm doing stand-up right now is telling that joke. Um, it's because I need them to understand that... I need them to understand two things. First of all, if you feel uncomfortable, good. Not because I'm trying to hurt you, but because you need to feel uncomfortable. You need to feel that way because it's actually going to be better for you in the long run as well. For you to get go through that level of being uncomfortable so you can come at the other end understanding something a bit better. But then also, I need, uh, I need white people to understand that in Western society, maybe just simply due to numbers, but also due to white supremacy, people who are maybe part of an ethnic minority in this country are constantly made to live through their own life story and also um, the mainstream narrative, which is, you know, the white person in this country, um, what your cultural references are, what you, your, your cultural beliefs are and everything. And it never really is forced or, or even really enjoyed the other way around. So as a black comic... I start off doing black shows, but if I ever really want to get anywhere with comedy, I have to learn how to perform into majority white audiences on the mainstream. Whereas most mainstream comics have never had to perform to a room full of black people and relate to them on any way. Never had to understand any of their cultural references, never had to really understand why they think the way they think or anything, because they can almost always be sure that there's going to be other white people in the audience, and they'll have a set somewhere they can connect on. So uh, being white English means this, and you can talk about, give me a cheer who's drinking, or whatever the the reference point is. Now, to for me to get that joke across, you now have to leave where you are to come over to where I am. And I think that's a valuable experience. I think... That's the real experience that a lot of white people chase when they go traveling, but they never actually get. Some people go, like, physically go to another place and just bring themselves with them. You know, some people go to Spain and order a full English, or some people even go into some deep jungle or something and really believe that they immerse themselves in another culture, but still come back with a lot of their own ideologies or, or... or put their own ideologies on the people, or view their ideologies through their lens and so on. Whereas I think the real mind-opening version of travel that we're all seeking is through empathy, listening to one another, following each other through a journey, great storytelling, comedy, um, art, true expression, friendship, relationship. Those are the things that are really going to get us where we need to go, which is in terms of leaving where we are to go where we need to go. You know, I, and that's the reason why I still engage in it. I would, if it was based on really like ending racism or whatever, I'd have given up a long time ago. But it's because I truly believe in providing a, a destination for white people who want to leave where they are, who've never had to, but would like to, to come to. Because I know that I... If you're a black person in this country, mentally, you are a traveller. You are constantly having to absorb so many different 
I mean, even being Nigerian, I have to understand what it is to be Jamaican for us to have a cohesive black British identity. I, 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 I then also need to understand what it is to be Asian because we're going to, at some point, be grouped into a people of colour group or something, and I need to understand where they're coming from. And then I need to understand white people because I'm going to interact with white people on a day-to-day basis. But that doesn't seem to happen the other way around, and I think that that's, that's almost a, a, a poverty of experience for a lot of my white friends and colleagues um, to not have that opportunity to go outside themselves, to go outside their own cultural norms, to go outside their own um, version of experiences. Um, And if I can provide a little bit of that, I'm creating a bit of the world that I want to see. Given your passion for the subject, Mm. the subject, (laughs) your life, your experience, (laughs) I am sort of surprised that you don't do more material about it. I think I, I feel like in when I've seen you do sets, I've seen your uh, his future wife. I saw that yeah. uh, that DVD you released, and there is a small amount of stuff. Like you said, there's that tester in your club set. There's a, there's a tester. There's like the the little I don't know what the to the boxing terms are. There's yeah. the little you know. There's the jab, yeah. and then there's the right hook. Yeah. But I feel like you could be doing hours and hours. You could be turning over an hour a year True. on this subject because your passion for it is so enormous. So is there? Is there something holding you back from doing that? Is it what's what is the thinking behind that? Well, I'd say there's two things. First of all, um, as I said, I have to learn how to navigate performing in front of white people. And if I was going to do an hour on race all the time every year, I would be giving them the opportunity to accuse me of being repetitive or boring or one trick pony or whatever it is. And I just can't afford to give anybody that opportunity. I have to show that I have many strings to my bow. Um, But putting aside that sort of constraint aspect of it, for myself personally, the way I look at life is, for example, I'm I'm a Christian. And because of the passion I have for Christ... Following what you said, I should essentially, if I if I know how to speak to crowds, and I and I love Christ, I should become a preacher, right? Whereas, I don't. Finally, we're getting to the point of this intervention. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that my calling is necessarily being a preacher. I think by being the kind of comedian I am, I'm being a, a Christian. In the public eye, I'm being a Christian in the world. I'm I'm showing, sometimes through my strengths and sometimes through my weaknesses, what it is to be a Christian out there. And I think that that is just as valid as me coming to you and saying, uh, "You need to believe in Christ." Sometimes me just being kind to somebody or me being humble about something is showing more of the love of Christ than if I was to explicitly talk about the love of Christ. And so when I talk about, you know, um, the topic of race, unfortunately, I don't get to compartmentalise race. Even the way I view my marriage and my relationships is coloured by race. The way I view my career is coloured by race. The way I view travelling around the world is coloured by race. Everything that I do is coloured by race. But by normalising them and by talking about them as I experience them, I get to do the same thing as if I was to just talk about how race affects people in this world. So we, whichever way I do it, the context is always there. Even if I've never mentioned being black, I'm still being black in front of you. And I'm talking to you about um, 
an issue I'm having with my wife. It's doing something in your brain where you go, you're either saying, do you know what? This is one of those similarities we have. And you don't even need to be like me to understand me because this guy has a wife and I have some of these issues with my wife and blah, blah, blah. And then sometimes you might hear me say something that's different. You'd be like, oh, culturally that's different. Okay, so I understand that the context of my marriage would be this, but in his marriage it's this. And so... I haven't told you that because I'm black or because we're Nigerian or because, you know, we're black British or whatever it is that our marriage is this way. You've learned a little bit more about me and it's more and it's not a lazy stereotype. It's a bit of it's a nice little idiosyncrasy that you're going to pick up on through some well-written material rather than me explaining to you the historical implications of black love in Western society and visions of uh, what it means to be beautiful as a black woman or blah, 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 you know, all those kind of versions. If I just tell you a joke about L'Oreal and, you know, the, the, the using fake eyelashes to sell mascara and stuff, I can give you a window into the way my mind works and then you start to realise where we have similarities and where there may be cultural differences. And I think that that's that's just as valid. That's that that and that's and that to me is probably way more satisfying because it's way more creative. Sometimes I do get tempted to just sort of get out on stage and just be like, "Do you guys realize that colonialism means this?" and blah blah blah. And I I just know that even as a comedian, I'd be disappointed with myself because I've seen some of my favorite comedians get to that point where they almost forget the being funny part and. It loses some of the strength they had before. I think the second half of Chris Rock's Never Scared special was just like that. He had so many great points to make. He almost forgot the beauty of being creatively funny. To And you can still get the same points across, but in a way that's I think has a bit more artistic merit to it. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make sure that even when somebody walks away, even if they never heard me do anything about race, they still are getting some version of what my message is about race. It's a fucking great answer. I was just debating whether to say, yeah, I'm the same with white people. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, man. Thank you. That's a really fucking good answer. That's a, you know, I I suppose I'm, I'm asking from the perspective of like, like I, I want you to do more because yeah. I get so tickled by not tickled is that makes it sound far more um, trivial than than I yeah. feel it is. You know, I I feel like you're one of those people who through your work and through particularly through Facebook, you're very provocative on Facebook. Mm. And I suppose I, as a comedy fan, want you to be that provocative on stage because it. You know, you did that. You did a. Sh- I'm gonna I'm gonna misquote it, but it's something like shout out to the white women who scuttle between race and gender depending on whether or not they want to be the uh the victim of privilege or the recipient of privilege or something yeah. along those lines yeah but i tell you the word that definitely was in there was the word scuttle and i read that and i was like fuck oh no man scuttle scuttle yeah 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 um i, I think scuttle was the word that conveyed my emotion most appropriately and and yes it's it's something that if you want to break it down word by word, it's it's um it is provocative. And I know it is. But I I've always made sure that I'm not just controversial for the sake of being controversial. As long as my point is there, it's fine. And and I know who my audience is for that. I know who my audience is for that. I know 
all the all the black women who um who feel that way and they express it but they don't know how to say it in a way that comes a status and gets this many likes and it's you know in some way humorous but they they have a frustration they want to express in in you know in the way that you know feminism will will often bring women together until a certain amount of privilege comes in and then black women find themselves on the back foot again they're like well I thought we were all sisters in this, but it turns out, no, it was actually more about white women than it was about women. Um, you know, often when uh, pay gaps are discussed, we actually discuss the, the the number for white women, whereas the pay gap's even supposed to be larger than for women of colour. Um, or the fact that um, a lot of the narratives surrounding misogyny weren't actually present in a lot of African um, cultures, they were actually Eurocentric problems and black women almost feel like they were drafted into sort of this fight that was never really their own fight. I know a lot of black women that feel that way when it comes to issues of of, of gender. Um, but then we also know that throughout history, white women have been very much involved in racism um, to the point where it benefits them. Uh, there are a lot of white women who would happily um, live on a plantation with their husband and their husband's whipping all the slaves and, and just be, take part in it, you know, or maybe convince themselves they're a bit better because, you know, they were nice to one slave or because they were sleeping with one of the black male slaves. A lot of them, you know, had mandingos which were purely for their own sexual pleasure. And, you know, that again, that is already a, a, a way in which you look at it and say, well, you're clearly using your privilege and position here to essentially put this person in a position where they, they don't have a sexual choice. It's not really consent, but you kind of make it, but it kind of feels this idea of like black men being so attractive or blah, 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 whereas the root of it is actually quite, demeaning it's it's one of sexual slavery um you know so i think dave Chappelle says it really really well on his one of his latest specials one of the two that came out on netflix where he says um i'm not saying white women don't have their problems but um let's be honest you were in on the heist you just didn't like your cut and and that's that's a that's a an accusation which um i don't think has been leveled up white women enough for them to understand the way in which they navigate the world. You know, I, th I think there's a, a lot that's been placed on white men because obviously if you're just going to look at privilege as this, you know, binary, two-dimensional thing, it's like, oh, you have uh, male privilege and you have white privilege and so on. You start to miss out on the fact that it's not really about the label. It's not really about this... Um, you know, you roll two dice and then what the numbers you get determine where you land. It's not like that. It's it's more about looking at, qualitatively, looking at the relationships between different demographics of people and how people use them to their own advantage and for uh, and even to oppress others. And And so that means that, yeah, even though I'm black, there are some things I gain as a, as a male, um, and there's some things that, even though a woman is white, um, 
even though a woman is a, a white woman is a woman, she still gains it from being white, you know, and and how white women do use those things. And that, that's why the scuttle word was very important because um, the narrative is very fluid when it comes to white women. Um, there are a lot of white women who will say to me as a black man, I understand where you're coming from because as a woman, and I'll often look at them and say, well, gender struggles and race struggles are very different, you know. Um, I don't think you get to necessarily make that false equivalency. But that doesn't mean that we don't have some things that are similar and we can both understand and empathise with one another. Um, and and I don't think there's there's anybody out here really challenging white women. And who, who, who better than Mr. Uncomfortable over here to, to just be the one to say it, you know? And as long as, I've, as long as I am speaking truth, I don't mind making anybody feel uncomfortable. I, I think most of my heroes in life made someone feel uncomfortable at some point. But the um, history found them on the right side of things. And the I think it was Martin Luther King that said, uh, you know, time always bends towards justice or something. I can't remember how he put it. But essentially, over time, what I'm saying will seem... In fact, what I'm saying now already seems more justified than when I was saying it five years ago. There are people who looked at me as crazy and revolutionary five years ago who since then have come round and almost talked to me as if I uh, am, am an authority on the subject, whereas all I've been is just passionate about it and, and about truth and about um, some sense of justice from a young age. That's all it is. I wasn't wrong then and right now. It was just people need time to sort of come over around and so what i'm saying about white women now sounds weird because you never hear a black guy outwardly just talking about white women unless it's one of those crazy guys who's out in the street shouting something and then you can dismiss him as crazy but when somebody's thought it out and said well actually white women need to take a look at the role that they play in upholding racism when it suits them um do they need to do they need to take more of a look at that than white men do um i don't i think everybody needs to take a look at themselves Everybody, everybody, it's, it's not a, it's a thing. We often break it down into these competitions as to who's more oppressive or who's the most oppressed or whatever it is. But every single person, I as a human being, as a black man, as a British man, as a British Nigerian, I have to consistently be self-reflective about the role I play on this earth. I have to. And there's so many dimensions to it. And it's not until, I don't need a Guardian article to tell me about it first. I need to look at myself and say, well, I'm somebody who's wearing a Nike tracksuit. What does that mean for a kid in a third world country working in a sweatshop? And I have to address myself on that issue uh, and say, well, to what extent do I really care about that? And be honest with myself, because not everybody cares about everything. Let's be honest here. I'm, 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 if I'm if I'm talking about justice in terms of being black and someone says, well, yeah, justice in terms of being gay, I have to be honest. My my fervor for your struggle isn't the same. I, I, pretending that it is is just a form of like virtue signaling and trying to pretend I'm holier than anything I am. Whereas the truth is, I've I've never really done anything for for gay people. Let me be honest with myself. I've never really done anything for um, children in sweatshops. I'm still wearing Nike. I still have to work that out with myself. But at least starting from the point of being honest with yourself allows you to start the journey. If I chose to be ignorant because it was too difficult to be honest with myself, I would never go anywhere, never get anywhere. 
So, you know, whatever it is, white women need to look at themselves in the roles that they play. White men need to look at themselves. Black women need... Black women love to be able to play the I'm doubly um, oppressed card. But even then, that's not to discount their experience. They definitely have reasons to say that. But that does not excuse anybody as part of the human condition to look at yourself and say, well, what, at what level am I bringing good into this world? At what level am I um, bringing evil into this world? Um, at what level am I excusing evil in this world or enabling evil in this world? Like, all of these things are all part of every human being's need for self-reflection and especially, I'd, I'd say, starting off with self-discovery. Once you start to discover yourself, and I feel like that's what stand-up is, it's almost like a self-discovery journey. And especially if you do it with honesty, you can really make some big changes. Big changes. But they don't seem so big once you first of all acknowledge them. Am I right in thinking if you need to have that conversation with yourself about why you wear Nike, Mm -hmm. if you can push that moment, if you can push that day where you have to have that conversation with yourself Mm -hmm. further down the line, you will eventually die before you need to have that conversation with yourself? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. And I think that's what a lot of us are doing um, in some way or the other. But I also... Here's the thing. I also, for me, especially believing in Christ, and this is one of the reasons why I think Christianity is so different from other religions. Um, it's the only faith that I'm aware of that doesn't, um, it doesn't offer salvation based on your works. I acknowledge part of being a Christian, a true Christian, a Bible-believing, God-fearing Christian is understanding that you are never going to get it right. 100%. You cannot get it right. There's so many scriptures in the, in, the, in the Bible that let you know that in this world, you are going to sin. You're going to get things wrong. You know, the, the Bible says that um, it was Paul who was writing to um, one of the churches and he said um, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I have to understand that about myself, that there are many things that I wish to be in terms of uh righteousness or justice or good or whatever you want to call it but I just will never get there whilst I'm in this body but does that excuse me to say carry on just doing whatever you want no what I do have though by my faith is understanding that I've been forgiven first of all which is what Christianity is about understanding that the work has already been done and so now you now switch from doing the right things out of a sense of self-righteousness to now doing them out of a love for God and a love for people. And when you start to, when love starts to be the guiding principle as to how you live your life, then it's no, it's, you're no longer like trying to follow the rules. Um, again, as Christianity, as the Bible describes it, it's about no longer being under the law, um, but being under grace. And once I understand that I'm under grace, I'm, I understand I'm going to get things wrong, but under, I also understand that God's going to do a work in me that over time I'm going to be a better person and it's a continuing work and it's something that even till the day I die I'm still going to have things I need to work on and that you're not going to see perfection in this body but in the next life and that it's 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 still it doesn't it doesn't warrant a, a, a life of licentious um foolish living while I'm here 
but this is a time to start that journey and to build that relationship. Because if I have a good relationship with God, I'm going to love the the creations that he made and I'm not going to look at people as less than. So even the fact that I um, wear Nike, I, I there's still a, a work that's already been done in my mind that lets me realise that, hold on a second, even though these... Uh, sweatshop workers aren't being paid properly at least I'm starting to see them in my mind more and more as human beings and people deserving of a chance at life, love, liberty, happiness, joy all these things that I would want for myself and that's why I I, I can't pretend to be perfect, I can't pretend to be a preacher or anything like that because I know that part of being, the way in which I make audiences racially uncomfortable I make myself economically uncomfortable. Not just because I like self-flagellation, but just because that's part of what I need to do in order to get out of myself for a second. Stop making it all about me. I have to understand that even when I talk about racism in terms of being black and British, I have to understand that I have a certain privilege. I've been cutting on the pie. I've been I've been cutting on a bit of it because if I grew up in Nigeria with all my other counterparts, I wouldn't have the opportunities I have today. If me and another Nigerian have an idea that requires us to travel around the world, I'm more likely to get my idea off the ground because he needs to get visas for everywhere he goes. And why is that? Why is the world set up that way? Why is my power, my passport so powerful? Why have I been given this opportunity? I didn't earn it. I have to deal with that myself. I need to understand that the same things I accuse white people of, I'm guilty of myself. I might not use race as the dynamic for doing it, but I definitely have acted in in terrible ways out of self-interest. I definitely have turned a blind eye to terrible atrocities because it didn't really hurt me too much. And so, maybe it's more mature to recognise that than to pretend it isn't happening. That's that's the beauty of giving my life to Christ. That's the beauty of it, is understanding that, yes, it's, whilst we might call it maturity, I call it almost, um, uh, it, it's definitely that next stage in where we need to grow as humans, is, is acknowledging the problems that we have and being honest about ourselves because... Whenever you see somebody who's trying to do the right thing but doesn't have the right power to do it, unfortunately what you find is a lot of them overcompensating and then you see them crumble because they can never build up, they can never hold up that image. They haven't been honest with themselves. And so, you know, that's why everybody loves watching a a celebrity who's all about family values eventually cheat on their wife or something like that because it shows that crack that we all like to see in human beings who tried to fly too close to the sun. You know, we sort of see the Icarus, um, uh, the, the Icarus in them die, and then we go, oh, okay, that justifies my my staying down here and not trying to ascend. But what Christianity has offered me um, is an opportunity to which I can steadily fly towards the sun, understanding that I'm not there but not dying on the process and understanding that I don't have a fireproof body. I'm not going to get there um, in this lifetime, but I'm at least in, I'm heading in the right direction. And um, and I wish that for a lot more people. I wish that more people would not just pat themselves on the back and just say, well, I'm a good person. Um, I don't use the N-word or um, 
I haven't raped any women or whatever version of good that we keep in our minds to justify ourselves, but to understand that there's so much that we miss and we could do so much better if we just acknowledged it and worked on it. Given that to be a success in comedy, to become an economic success, one of the things we as comedians have to do is be different to our fellow comedians. That's like one that really helps, right? Yes, yeah. And we're talking about you as someone you recently were on 8 Out of 10 Cats. Yeah. First little bit of mainstream TV. Uh, I'd say so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so there's there's kind of like, oh, hello, we've got a taste. Is it your go-round, the merry-go-round, you know, at the moment? This could go on. And given that I've had nearly 250 of these conversations and mm. I've never talked about some of the stuff we're talking about, yeah. in order to send your daughter to private school, does your next Edinburgh show have to be called White Women? <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Because that is, I mean, if you're looking for an angle and a subject that you can passionately talk about yeah, and that no one else has gone near... <laughs> I mean, I, I tell you, I tell you. Why, why would you not like? I, I, you know, if you if you say to me now, I'm going to do that's a fucking good idea. I'll take this bit <laughs> off the podcast. I'll leave it to you. I would love you to because I want to see that show. I yeah. want to see Ola's show, White Women. I want to see that show. I want to be. I want to be confronted with that. And I, you know, I selfishly want that. I, yeah. want, you know, um, as a, as a comedy fan. Um, but I suppose I'm asking the question because maybe you're not going to do that. And mm. if you're not going to do that. Why not? Um, yeah. So you I, have I probably a platform. Am... You've got all of these thoughts and you've got a platform. Yes. And I don't think that my platform is where I want it to be yet. But I'd, I'd, I'll tell you why I'm not going to do it. Um, what I've recently realised about myself and where I am in my career and what's exciting me and what's driving me in terms of passion is that I've started to understand that I'm less enamoured and interested. There's still a place for it but I'm less enamoured and interested with trumpeting my views to the world and more interested in sparking the discussions that make, that communicate those views, but in a way that it sparks in people's minds and people go on their own journeys and get there as well. So what that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about Sunday service as a show because one of the one of the crown jewel in the show is the fifteen to twenty minutes where we discuss a real issue. I feel like that part, the fact that there's a discussion in the show, is one of the biggest communications of who I am as a comedian, um, somebody who wants to be able to discuss real issues but loves the beautiful art of making people laugh. And so the fact that I can get two comedians on to do their sets. And then getting to sit down and all of us in the room discuss a real issue is way more powerful than if I just wrote, you know, another joke about um, white women for some reviewer to tell me he isn't good enough because he didn't like it or she didn't like it. If I can get people laughing and talking and thinking, I think that's even more powerful and even more exciting. And... And so Sunday service is something I keep building on because I think that that's that's I think that's my million dollar idea. I think that's what's going to take me to the top. I think that's what's going to be. The, I think it's the, my my magnus opus as of now. And the reason why I say that is because 
you wanting to hear me talk about white women already is a show um, that can happen within Sunday service. We could, I could write a couple jokes about it and there is a space in the show where I do a couple jokes, but we can have that discussion. And I can say some things that's going to get the crowd talking and I can ask some questions in a way that people get a chance to loosen up and, and really engage with me on, on the topic and on the issue, um, but still walk out feeling like they had a great show. And I think that's going to be one of the hallmarks of it is that everything you want to hear my take on or my discussion on, you can hear it, but in 12 people's voices uh, and, and through 12 people's perspectives. And so I get a chance to travel and go through their worlds. And when someone stands up and says, well, I, as a white woman, I find this offensive and I can say, all right, I understand that and I expect that, but why? Um, she can give her own point of view. Then a black woman can stand up and say, well, do you understand how it feels to be a black woman within a feminist movement? And then the white woman can travel to where she is. And I can understand where both of them are coming from. And I can ask the questions that get them to both say what they need to say to each other to the point where um, we all get where we need to go and we're all laughing at the same time and the comedians are doing their bit and everybody is sort of, I'm creating the world that I want to see. That's it. I'd rather do that than, um, than only... I still love stand-up, don't get me wrong, I'm still going to be a stand-up. But I think um, in in many ways this has been way more powerful in terms of an experiment, a project, and um, I'm so excited to bring it back in 2018, man. That's um, that's going to be the one. Sunday service with Ola, telling you about it. It's good, like, this clip is going to be worth something, like, 20 years' time. It's going to be like, oh, Ola was so sure of Sunday service. <laughs> he was so sure of it. You can just splice together a bit about me with billionaire thoughts and then, like, me saying, oh, this is the millionaire idea. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. But I, I really do believe in it. I really believe that there's nothing out there like it and, and it's needed. Is there, just finally then, is there, and we never, we never took a moment to explain what Sunday Surface is. Sunday oh, Surface yeah, is. I think we can get it from context. It's a kind of mixed bill show of which you're the boss hosting it the head in, pasta the, the head pasta <laughs> yeah. and there are some genuinely brilliant black and white images uh, available on your facebook page thank you very much um but um just to i've said to wrap up before and i'll say it again because there's more to talk about but to draw things to a close then i suppose what i'm interested in, in asking finally apart from this tangential thing which we didn't get to which isn't tangential at all but is about your name yeah uh which I'm always fascinated. I, I suppose historically I've been fascinated that a lot of black acts or black circuit acts go with a single name, yeah. which I've always, which I was going to ask you about. And I think I'm actually more interested. I saw a clip on, on your Facebook about the, uh, my, my real name hashtag, my true name. Yeah. Um, and I suppose for me, it's a kind of a mixed issue. Like it's, it's too, I, we're basically, we run out of time and I'm trying to talk about it. <laughs> Oh my goodness. It's such a fucking good name. I, but do you think, let me try and ask a small, maybe pertinent question. Okay. I noticed on, on eight out of 10 cats that you are credited as, and new comedian, Ola. Yeah. Because presumably they can't call you Ola the comedian. Yeah, oh well. It would just kind of look weird in the copy, right? Yeah. Jimmy Carr and Ola the comedian. <laughs> do you know what I mean? That would seem a bit odd. 
Well, uh, the thing is, I I keep saying it, but it's it's all of the comedian thing kind of ran away from me. I just wanted to be Ola, but I couldn't. Um, I couldn't get Ola.com. I couldn't get nice, Ola no characters. Yeah, I, I couldn't get all the stuff I needed as just Ola. It's too many French restaurants have gone Ola. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like I. I essentially started putting Ola, the comedian, so that when I was putting stuff online, it wouldn't just be like, who's this dude, Ola? It'd be like, oh, he's a comedian. So that was for the online. And so then basically when people started booking me, especially when I started doing a lot of the black shows, um, Ola, the comedian, just became the way in which they described me. It was a description and then sort of became a name. And then it sort of just carried on. And so different places it says Ola the Comedian. Other places I've tried to like get it to just be down to Ola where it's clear. Like if it's on Chortle, I want it to be clear that my name is just Ola. Like I don't need to put Ola the Comedian on there. But when I'm being booked on a show where there's a poet and a, a, a violinist or whatever it is, Ola the Comedian was necessary back then um, as, as a means of description. I actually first started off, and this is hugely... I'm not, impre- I'm not impressed with myself... Kind of ashamed, but um, when I first started off comedy, I I went by the name. I went by the moniker Don Number One. Yeah, I'm okay. I, I managed to stay silent there, but that the record show I threw my head back silently. <laughs> yeah, and fair play to you for admitting that yeah. in a very public scenario. <laughs> <laughs> you made me feel so comfortable. <laughs> Um, but yeah, when I first, when I was rapping when I was like 16 and stuff, that was my rap moniker. And then I, I used to airbrush t-shirts and stuff. And that was, I'd signed Don Number One as a thing. And it just became like a general moniker. Because when I started comedy, I used Don Number One and I was just like, it just doesn't feel right. Just go with honour. Because the just, audience can smell bullshit, right? Yeah. Even I didn't believe in it. It was definitely like, all my promo pictures of me wearing sunglasses, like trying to feel like I'm something that I wasn't. And it just wasn't. It wasn't right. So I was like, okay, let me start building a more authentic image of who I am. And so I went with Ola. That was when I now, it was, everyone called me Ola. You know, the full name is Ola Wale, Wajabi Amila, Idris Ola Wale, Ulu Darik, Wajabi Amila. But um, just for clarity, you said half the name and then you said your full name. It's not, that wasn't all of it in one go. (laughs) The full name is Idris Ola Wale, Ulu Darik, Wajabi Amila. Idris, is an Islamic name. My father's a Muslim. I'm not, so I don't use it. Um, Olawali is the name that most, like, has always been my first name growing up. My family called me Wale. Um, I couldn't trust my friends at school to call me Wale because they would say Wally and then they'd sing, where's Wally? And I got sick and tired of it. So I made them call me Ola. Uh, I always introduced myself as Ola to people I didn't know. And my family called me Wale and people at church called me Wale and stuff like that. So, um, I felt like Ola was a great name because that was how I introduced myself to people. And yeah, I just needed a way to describe myself in um in a way that was gonna easily communicate what it is I do. So it wouldn't be like, oh, we're having Ola on the bill. Ola is uh well, we'll see what Ola does when he gets on stage. Something like that. I didn't want that kind of thing. So I wanted it to be Ola the Comedian. Or if you saw Ola uh, Ola you'd know what it is I do. But um I did, I never really intended to be known as Ola the Comedian, I just wanted to be known as Ola which I guess was ambitious at a time when people didn't even know that I was funny. Now you're a big TV guy. Are <laughs> you going to start using your actual surname? Um, no. 
No, um, I, I, and it's a weird one because usually I'd probably be on the other side of this argument. Um, and I know Imran Yusuf is always pushing me to try and use my full name. Um, but if I'm honest, I like Ola. I like I like I like what it communicates about me. I think there's a certain arrogance of trying to go with a three letter name to be known by. Like I think there is another Ola in the circuit. He came after me, and yeah, yeah. Who's that guy? He's not the comedian, is he? Clearly, <laughs> clearly not the comedian. With all due respect, to Ola, him. he's Ola a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I. This part of it is the fact that I like Ola and I like what I've been able to do with Ola. But um, I, I also there's a certain trust I don't have for for people. I don't trust people with my name. Like I, I it's a weird thing to say, but I didn't enjoy my name growing up, and it took me a while before I learned to love my name. And so the natural thing would be like, all right, so now I'm so proud of it. I'm going to tell everybody my name, and everybody's going to call me my name. But there's still a certain block I've had with with giving people my full name because I just don't think most people can be trusted with it. It's a weird thing. I don't know how to explain it other than that. But I think Ola, that correctly demarcates the kind of relationship we have. You know, my wife, obviously, I've given her my name. She's become Mrs. Wajabia Miller. Um, but even then, I was... I needed her to show an excitement about that name before when we first talked about when we were first dating and stuff. Um, I needed to see that from her because what I didn't want was a wife who was going to be like, oh, your surname's a bit... Ugh, I, don't know if I, want, I don't know if I want that name. I kind of like... Which I've previously had girlfriends say to me. So um, it's a weird thing to be protective over, but I'm, I'm, I'm super proud of my name. I'm super proud of Wajabi. It means a lot. Uh, Wajabi is a very rare name, even amongst Nigerians, but... We've the Wedge Abimelas have done things. Um, two NFL players called Wedge Abimelas brothers, um, and so I, I, I something I treasure, uh, but I don't quite want to give it to just every and anybody yet. Thanks, man. Thank you for having me, dude. So that was Ola the comedian, or simply Ola. And uh, you can find his stuff all over the place online and, uh, and indeed live. He travels up and down the country. I've sort of gigged with him outside of London as well as in. So do keep an eye out for him. So thank you to Oliver for coming on and thank you to Nathan Wood for producing and editing this episode. Um, and thank you to you for listening to it and for contributing to it either financially or by sharing it about the place, telling friends about it. Uh, walking up to me in the street and putting folded cash in my hand and saying something cool, uh, or leaving a review either on iTunes or on the myriad variety of podcast apps uh, with which you are able to access the content. So um, thanks very much for that. You can, God, you can hear my rasping voice. This is a combination of jet lag and actually being away 
uh, and uh, doing some late night networking. That's valid. I've been doing some late night networking. That's been quite fun. Not last night. I'm still recovering from two nights ago. Gosh, God, I've worked those nets hard. So thank you very much for uh, for sharing, reviewing and uh, liking and clicking and subscribing and doing all of those things that you have to do these days. What with the Internet? Thanks for all of that. So now, for those of you that are sticking around, uh, as a postamble, you can now hear me being very excited pre-show in a slightly echoey ballet studio and then uh, very tired afterwards. And uh, I, spoiler alert, quite happy. So uh, <laughs> uh, enjoy these now, if you wish, and I will speak to you next week. Bye for now. Hello, everyone. This is just a little recording from backstage at uh, the Tabernacle in Notting Hill, which is where we are going to perform Everyone's a Comedian tonight. Uh, if you have been following the development of this thing, this project, pro- I don't know, I, I don't know if I'm the sort of person who does projects. It's a thing, I'm doing a thing. Um, if you've been following the development of this, then this is the sort of the second phase. So the first phase uh, was me. If you do, if you do things, they allowed to have phases, or those reserved for projects. Anyway, the first thing was doing a completely crowdsourced uh, hour of stand-up comedy sent in by you and uh, all of your funny ideas and what have you. And I, I did those uh, unseen, uh, just myself doing an hour in what we believe to, be, to have been a world first at Edinburgh at the Fringe last year. And then, since then, I've been trying to turn it into a TV show. And I met with some people from TalkBack and had one of the best meetings of my life where <laughs> the, the MD of TalkBack, Leon, came into the uh, room with me and I was all like, oh, I'm meeting a TV person. And uh, he really nerded out about the Andy Daly episode of ComCom. So I was like, oh, we're going to get on fine. So uh, we had a lovely chat and then that turned into some other conversations and then that turned into meeting some... Uh, some other people, and uh, uh, and then working on the show, and then snagging a, a host for the show, someone who would be good to play with on stage, who would have a, a different sort of uh, energy to what I do, and someone that could sort of steer the ship. And we've managed to snag Rod Gilbert, so uh, Rod, who's been on the on the podcast before, and um, and who I've uh, gigged with or adjacent to once or twice, certainly hung out with him a bit at the Secret Welsh Festival. And he was as perfect for it as we hoped he would be. And we did some run-throughs and sort of formatted, took the basic idea of getting the public to send in comedy and then uh, uh, getting professional performers to try and find the funny in it. Some of it was naturally funny, some of it was uh, uh, a bit wonky but had potential, and some of it was really bad but uh, but all of it we thought could be a good starting point so we um we sorry it's a bit echoey in here because i'm walking around in some sort of ballet what do you call it a studio a ballet studio around the the, the the back of the space while everyone sets up and um and so it's undergone various kind of run-throughs with some comedians friends of mine so exciting to be the person who can say, why don't we get this person in? Um, because they're my friend and they're brilliant and I think they'd be perfect for this. And so lots of, our, lots of my friends came in. And uh, I, the, the joy you can hear in my voice is because I've often been on the other side of this phone call. That, that is but one tiny part of how exciting this whole process is continuing to be. I feel oddly not nervous about it. I hope I don't look back or listen back to this recording and think, well, you should have been more nervous because you weren't very good. But it's, I feel like 
You know, the way I, I, I might have said to you before, I can be um, much more positive about the podcast sometimes. When I meet people, if I meet a producer at a festival, say, and they say, what are you up to? It's very hard to say, I'm a stand-up comedian, I'm really excellent, you should come and see me. It's hard to say that, but I, I find it much easier to say, I do this podcast and it's really excellent because I'm sort of one step removed from it. I can say, oh, I do this thing and, you know, regardless of whether or not individual people like it, I absolutely believe in its... Um, in its value and its integrity. And of course, I can say that about my own stand-up, but one tends not to. So, in the similar sort of way, this show, I, it's, it's kind of my baby, and I've had to share my baby, and now it's other people's baby as well, but it's still my baby. And it's called Everyone's a Comedian, and I've just seen that projected, written up on a, on a screen with people sort of setting up sound and lighting stuff and desks and laptops and stuff all around. And I'm like, oh, I remember when I came up with the, <laughs> the name for the show. And uh, that's pretty exciting too. So, um, so I'm at this, this slight remove from it whereby I, I'm not as nervous as if I were to be going out and doing an hour or, or, or appearing on a TV show. You know, I've done bits of TV with my stand-up here and there and I can get very nervous about those. This one... I hope right now, it's early morning now, and I hope this isn't the beginning of me becoming nervous, but um, uh, I don't feel nervous about it. I feel like, oh, yeah, this, this is my thing I invented and, or instigated, and now people come and play the games. We've got comics who are going to come and play the games, if I'm allowed to name them, and if I find out I'm not, I'll take this out later, but I don't see why I shouldn't. Uh, they are uh, Tom Parry, Rose Matafeo, and Ed Gamble, all of whom are going to make a great job of it. I have total confidence. Um, and, um, and Rod's hosting, and I'm being the sidekick to the host and being the person who looks after all the gear and says, we got this submitted and this was sent in, or, or have you. And, um, and I, just, I just really believe in it. I think it's a really funny concept, and I think the games will be really funny, the formats that we've devised are going to be really funny and give the comics an opportunity to be brilliant. And so I just sort of believe in it. So rather than walking in circles going, oh, God, shit, I hope it works, I'm, I feel kind of oddly calm and like, yeah, this is really good, this is going to work. So I hope it does. But I just thought I'd let you in on what I'm thinking uh, round about now, uh, in case you can... <laughs> um, I think I'm getting nervous! <laughs> OK, I'm going to calm down. I'm going to uh, go back to learning my script and... Uh, doing some pacing, stuff like that. But calm, calm pacing. So I'm driving home after the show, after everyone's a comedian, the pilot, and I'm recording this in a safe and legal way using a Bluetooth device. And that's... I did a thing! I did a thing! I thought of the thing and I did the thing and now the thing is a thing! Yes! God damn it! Oh my god! What a satisfying feeling it is! It was so good! It was so good! Tom Perry and um, Ed Gamble and Rose Matafeo were all brilliant, brilliant guests and brought exactly the right kind of tone to it and it found their feet within moments. Uh, Rod was absolutely brilliant and, and it's so funny to, to, <laughs> to have kind of cast rod so now i sort of feel this weirdly um kind of <laughs> fatherly thing like it's one thing to be part of a show and go oh rod was great he was a great host but like 
Rod was exactly what I wanted him to, he brought to it exactly what I wanted him to bring. And the dynamic between me and him is him this kind of gruff host that people are trying to impress and he's not buying the premise. And then I'm the yappy kind of, he describes me early on in the script as seeing me as sort of like a puppy humping the leg of comedy. And that made sense. I'm the kind of comedy nerd and he's the kind of the, the old stone face that we've got to try and impress. And, um, God, man, it was so good. It was just like I thought it would be like. It was It was exactly as I hoped it would be. How often do you get to say that about anything? And, you know, who knows? Maybe nothing will happen. So many things don't get made. And I, I mention on the show all the time, Cowards is my kind of... Uh, <laughs> I'm not calling anyone a coward. I mean, the sketch show Cowards was so good and didn't get picked up for a full series. And so that, I remember seeing that and hearing that and thinking, what? Oh, well, nothing's worth doing then. Um, and, uh, you know, let's, let's not use that as a watchword. That's the new ComCom t-shirt. Nothing's worth doing. <laughs> um, never try. That's something me and my brother are fond of uh, saying to each other. Um, so just to have, to have dreamt up a thing and it was real. And so many people were involved in it and so many people were brilliant and... Everyone at Talkback was great from the from the top down. Everyone, I just felt supported. I felt like I was listened to and people made... It fascinating being in an environment where you would say, here's an idea, why don't we do... Why don't we do it like this? You know, you're trying to come... You know, the ideas are there. We've worked on this format. We've suggested other games. It's all, like, cooking. And then there's a problem. There's some sort of challenge on the way. And you go, um, well, maybe we should try it like this. And then someone who knows exactly what the hell they're doing and has been doing it for years says, no, that won't work, here's why. And you go, great, let's not think about it anymore. <laughs> I almost had to... I'm so used to being a one-man band that I'm... I'm... It was so weird. I felt like I was coming across as glib because I was saying, what about this? Someone was saying, no, and here's why. And I wouldn't fight for it. Not in every case, but I'd go, yeah, fine, OK, move on. And uh, I, I worried sometimes that it looked like I was being a bit chippy, like, no, I'm fine then. But I genuinely just meant, oh, fine, great. Well, I, I'm not going to waste any more time thinking of that. I mean, I suppose the, hey, here we go, Goldsmith's found a negative. Here, every silver lining has a cloud. I suppose what that tells me is just, you know, imagine how much more shit I could get done if I had, if I was part of a team. I mean, I am a team. I've got a manager and I've got the management team and they, they're all absolutely on board. But what I mean is, like, the very beginnings, the... The like when writing a joke, when imagine if there was someone I've spoken before. You remember in the interview with Tom Allen many years ago, we talked about how great it would be if there was a little uh, spherical droid floating around you that could say that just noticed when you said a funny thing in real life and would just went beep, just recording that. Have you got something on that? That's the nicest thing a, com a comic can do for another comic is go, oh, that thing you just said casually in conversation. That's naturally funny and naturally you. Well, similarly. Imagine if the little droid, if there was another little orbiting droid, because, you know, let's keep it sci-fi, that's, that's a Goldsmith trope. Um, if the little droid could go, no, there's no need to do that. That's a, that's a blind alley. That's a waste of time. Like, I see, you know, we we did not fight, but we, we kind of squared up on a few... No, Stephen, that's too negative. But Amanda, our brilliant series producer... She would say, no, trust me on this, it's not going to work. And sometimes I'd go, no, 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 I, I think it'll, uh, 
I, it, it is going to work. That is going to work. Come on, you trust me. I'm, I've been in the completely not TV biz for years. I bet I, I know something about what's funny. And, uh, and afterwards, I just said to him, you were completely right about everything. <laughs> but imagine that. What could, you, what could you achieve if one of the little spherical hover droids was just there saying, no, no, Blind Alley, don't waste your time on that. This whole thing where you're working on a... God knows, some facet of the mailing list is pointless. This whole thing where someone's asked you to do a, a, a project and it's not going to lead anywhere, so don't... A, do the work, or B, do all the stress, which is ten times harder work than the work. That'd be good, wouldn't it? What I'm saying is, isn't it great when stuff's great? Wouldn't it be great if stuff was great all the time? But I'm so, I'm so thrilled. I mean, you know, you could, this is, I'd be amazed if anyone's still listening at this point. Um, I, I hope I'm blowing other people's trumpets as well as my own. But what, what an exciting, what an exciting thing. Just seeing I mean, I said this before, just seeing everyone's a comedian in the font. I didn't choose the font. Great font. I questioned the font. They were right. It was a good font. Just seeing everyone's a comedian thrown up on the screen on the back wall and remembering first thing this morning, oh, yeah, that's my that's my thing. Sort of more so than, you know, obviously I see the kind of the print, you know, my tour titles and all the rest of it, but that's such an arduous process of going, what about this, what about this, what about this, and settling on something. And also, I'm used to it. I'm used to that element of it. I'm really proud of my stand-up shows, but I'm used to pres- producing and presenting stand-up shows. And this was so new and really, really special. That'll probably do for now. Thank you, everyone. Again, it's just one of those... It's just another one of those things that I couldn't have done without you. This... Oh, this is good. My eco-drive thing has turned the engine off. At an appropriately emotional moment, which I'm now going to ruin because I need to continue driving. But I couldn't have done this without you, without you listening, without, without A, people being there to send in their stuff for the original premise, just to try it. Otherwise, you'd have the idea and you wouldn't be able to try it. I've got this conduit to all of you, and, I, and that's really valuable. Um, and people who are just up for helping me with mad ideas. Um, and I just... You know, this you are a big part of me now. <laughs> you are. You're a you're a big part of the my kind of my creative identity, my creative practice, which is the sort of thing I'd have said at college many years ago, um, whilst pouring milk into shoes. But um yeah. Thanks everybody that's been involved in it, not least of which you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.